This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Surcoat. Okay, we know we're getting a bit predictable here in our introductions this month, but we are going to once again point out that a certain season of the year is upon us. But unlike the previous two episodes, we're not going to complain about holiday shopping or ugly sweaters or how things used to be so much better when we were young. Nope. Because the season we're referring to this time is the season of well-meaning elderly advice. A season when a young person could not leave their house without having a cautionary admonition shouted at them by a parental figure. And a season which, now that we are old and forgetful and could use a helpful reminder sometimes, we sorely miss. It's the season of being reminded to take a coat with you because it's cold outside. Something which we keep forgetting until we actually get outside and then have to stand there agonizing over whether we want to walk all the way back upstairs to our apartment for our coat or just deal with the cold for a few minutes until the heater in the car warms sufficiently. Now, presumably, we all remember being admonished during the autumn and winter months by our parents to remember our jacket or coat. And at the time, it drove us crazy because we were teenagers and we were busy. We were in a rush. We had things to do. And we were basically insensible to the elements. Unlike our apparently anemic parents who thought that shorts and t-shirt weather ended when the temperature dipped below 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And despite now wishing we didn't keep forgetting our own outerwear with distressing frequency, if we could somehow travel back in time to those heady winter days of our youth, it would still drive us crazy. But for different reasons. It'd drive us crazy because our parents used the words coat and jacket interchangeably. And we are nothing if not pedantic nitpickers, always looking to criticize others for the most minor of linguistic slights. So let's set the record straight on coats and jackets, and while we're on the subject, talk about the history of outerwear. Particularly because coats and jackets are precisely the sorts of things a medieval adventurer would wear. Well, a peasant adventurer. Or or sometimes a night adventurer, not an upper-class adventurer. Because coats and jackets, you see, were for peasants. Now, we do have to admit, we're picking nits when we insist that there's a difference between a coat and a jacket. Because the words just aren't that precise anymore. And frankly, people don't care. And that's all to do with the fact that everyone except Spanish adventurers stopped wearing capes and cloaks back in the 18th century. And as a result, jackets and coats became so complicated that the difference between the two became mired in complexities and contradictions. But if you want to get technical, and we always do, the difference between a coat and a jacket is still all to do with the length. Both coats and jackets are sleeved garments, often worn as the outermost garment, that are open down the front, but can be fastened with buttons, zippers, hooks and loops, or other fasteners. They are both worn for a variety of purposes, from fashion to protection from the elements. They are both made from a variety of materials and come in a variety of thicknesses. 
The thing that makes a coat a coat instead of a jacket is that it is long. Generally, a coat hangs below the hips, more or less, and a jacket stops above or at the hips. That's it. That's the whole difference. Sort of. As we said, people really don't care anymore. And coats and jackets evolved a lot, especially starting in the 18th century. But we'll come back to that. Let's talk about the origins of coats and jackets. In the early Middle Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire, but before the various European kingdoms really got going, clothing was pretty simple. Everyone wore tunics. Mainly because that's what the Romans wore. And that was basically just a long, loose, single garment that covered your body. The earliest tunics were basically just folded cloth with neck holes. But they gradually evolved to be more like long shirts. Men and women also wore leggings underneath, breeches, or hose. Women's tunics were a little different than men's tunics. They were slitted up the front, up the bodice, and laced closed. And they were dress length. Men's tunics varied more in length. And the longer your tunic, the higher your status. See, peasants wore nice short tunics so that the hanging tunic wouldn't impede their work. Wealthier folks, especially the nobility, wore longer tunics. The most extravagant noblemen wore tunics that hung all the way to the floor. Of course, there were other differences as well. Peasants wore simple wool or linen clothing. Nobles wore clothing made of silk from Byzantium or cotton from Egypt and Arabia. And because hunting was a hobby for the wealthy, they also adorned their clothing with fur or leather. That's not to mention decorations like brooches, shoulder clasps, belts with buckles, and that kind of thing. Another big difference between peasant tunics and noble tunics, apart from the fact that if you could see someone's knees you knew they worked for a living, was sleeves. The peasant classes spent a lot of time exposed to the elements, and so gradually they started sewing sleeves onto their tunics. The nobility had different means of dealing with the elements if they had to go outside. But we'll come back to that. What does all of this have to do with coats and jackets? Well, both coats and jackets evolved from tunics, but they evolved for very different reasons. And if you noticed that we were making a big deal out of the length of the tunics, good on you for paying attention. The word coat actually entered the English language around the 12th century, even though etymologically, we usually call it a 13th or 14th century word. And that's because the first use of coat was in a specific phrase, coat of mail. A coat of mail was basically a tunic made out of a mesh of metal links. Yeah, it was a chainmail hauberk. And it was the first mail armor. The word coat in the name seems to come originally from a Frankish word that means coarse covering though there's a lot of uncertainty there. And the word male comes by way of French from a Latin word, macula, which means net or mesh. You know what else was happening around this time? Well, if you remember our episodes about the paladin or about mercenaries, you know that this was the era when knights and chivalry and feudalism were really catching on. And knights needed a way to identify themselves when they were otherwise covered with armor. See, this was an era where there weren't military uniforms because there weren't, technically, militaries in most places in Europe. A military was something you raised when you needed it, not something you maintained. Except, of course, for the people leading them. The knights, lords, and kings. But people needed to identify whose side they were on when battles did break out. And people also needed to know who to cheer for during tournaments. And so, 
Knights started draping a clothing item over their armor. It was basically a tunic, sleeveless, and slid it up the front and back to allow the knight to ride a horse. And, on the front and back, it was adorned with a symbol that identified the knight, or lord, or king. And it was called a surcoat. Sir being a prefix from French that also came from Latin and meaning above or over. It was worn over the covering. See? Now, we've already covered the story about how the symbols on surcoats came to also adorn shields and armor, and thus those symbols became known as coats of arms. And they had to be standardized, and that led to heraldry, and so on, and so on, and so on. But this also established the coat, a long tunic-like garment, as outerwear, and specifically as military wear. Oh, and we also have to admit we skipped a little step in the development of armor and surcoats worn over the armor. See, there was another coat in there. You had a coat of mail, which was the first chainmail, and then chainmail evolved into a tunic, leggings, and coif design. And then someone had the neat idea of taking a linen or wool coat and sewing metal plates to it to wear over the mail. And that was called a coat of plates. And then plate armors evolved and the surcoat was worn over that. But we digress. Meanwhile, while all of this was going on, working-class peasant clothing was undergoing some changes. See, people were getting better at sewing and tailoring in general, whereas tunics started as basically just folded cloth with a neck hole and no sleeves, it was getting possible to fit them better and better. You know, to actually tailor them to something shaped like a human body. And to add fancy embellishments like tube-like attachments that covered the arms, which we call sleeves. Now, as noted, peasants preferred shorter tunics so the draped cloth didn't get in the way of their work. And finally, a bit of clothing emerged that was basically a fitted, short, sleeved outer garment that didn't hang down at all. That's a thing that today we call a jerkin. But here's the funny thing. We know that's not what they called it, because the English language of the middle and late medieval era was lacking in an important feature that would allow for words like jerkin. And that was the letter J. Okay, there was a letter J, but it was just a decorated letter I, and it came into existence purely because of Roman numerals. As you might know, the Roman numbering system consists of a string of letters which each represent a specific value. You add up the values from left to right, and sometimes subtract values when a lower value number appears to the left of a higher value number, and you get a big number. For example, XVIII means 18. The X is 10, the V is 5, and each I is a 1. XIV means 14. The X is still 10, and the V is still 5, and the I is still 1, but the 1 appears left of the 5, and so has to be subtracted from the 5. See? Simple. Look, we're sure you learned this in elementary school. Or from Rocky movie sequels. What does this have to do with the letter J? Well, there was a problem with Roman numerals. And that was, if you were writing numbers and text together, 
and had to start a word with the letter I right after you wrote a numeral, people often mistook that I for another number one. And so it became practice to add a little curly flourish to the last I in a Roman numeral. Seriously. So 18 would actually be written as X-V-I-I-J. You remember that bit about how in the Latin alphabet, Jehovah begins with an I in that Indiana Jones movie? Well, that's why. They don't have a letter J. It was just a decorated I. And it wasn't until languages like French and Dutch started evolving new sounds like a soft G sound that someone hit on the idea of using the decorated I as an actual letter. That was in 1524. So the thing we call a jerkin wasn't called a jerkin or a jacket, but that's what it was. And eventually, around the 1500s, that's what it was called. A jerkin, after the Dutch word for address, jerk. Or a jacket, after the French word jacquet, meaning a short coat with sleeves. Both words use that fancy new J. And that's precisely what a jerkin or jacket was, a short, tightly fitted, sleeved garment worn on the upper body. And interestingly enough, this style of more tightly fitted clothing that became popular in the late medieval period was known as the Spanish figure. Remember that. It's important in a bit, because the Spanish will be leading another fashion revolution in this story. Now, the jacket was all well and good, but there was still the issue with exposure to elements. So they needed to wear something over their clothes to protect themselves from cold and rain and snow and whatnot. And their medieval mommies needed something to yell after them as they ran out the door. And so they lifted an idea from knights and warriors, a long draped piece of outerwear called a surcoat, or just a coat. Of course, coats and jackets were for peasants and warriors. Remember how everyone was real uppity about status and style and the length of things? Well, no respectable nobleman was going to be caught wearing something as inelegant as a jacket. And when they went outside, they weren't going to drape themselves in a coat. Oh, no. The upper classes wanted something more refined, something fancier. They wore cloaks and capes. And that's pretty interesting, because in most fantasy art and pop culture... Everyone wears cloaks, right? That was just the outerwear you wore. But the truth is, it was actually a bit of a luxury. See, the peasantry mainly protected themselves from the elements by just layering up. Drape a bigger, heavier tunic over your other tunic if you want to keep warm. Just add sleeves to your tunic if you don't want your arms getting cold. That kind of thing. The idea of having a special garment that you only wore to go outside or when traveling around, one that was long and loose and only covered your back and head, that was just silly. You were always outside. And who travels anyway? It's dangerous out there. Cloaks and capes were for the wealthy and the affluent. Now while we're on the subject, we might as well actually talk about the difference between a cloak and a cape. They're both similar garments. They're basically a form of draped outerwear worn to cover the shoulders. They might include a hood or they might not, and they could be made out of all sorts of different materials. The difference, though, is in the length. Cloaks fall well below the knees while capes stop at or above the hips. 
Does that sound familiar? See, because cloaks were preferred by the upper classes, they gradually started to serve purposes beyond simple utility. Around the 1400s, these garments started to vary greatly in length and embellishment, and they became useful in signifying a person's status or profession. And this is probably when capes and cloaks started to diverge substantially in design. Capes were shorter, lighter garments that tended to be embellished more, and were worn more for fashion purposes. Cloaks were heavier, longer, and used for utilitarian purposes. And so, capes and cloaks and coats and jackets all continued to evolve throughout the centuries. Coats and jackets continued to be worn by the working classes. Capes and cloaks tended to be worn by the upper classes. Until the 18th century. In the 18th century, cloaks and capes started to fall out of favor with the upper classes in favor of coats and jackets. And this is about when we start to see the first real explosion in the types of coats and jackets available. And while cloaks and capes did enjoy a resurgence in popularity in the Victorian era and through the mid-1900s, they never quite supplanted the broad variety of coats and jackets that kept springing into being. And we could talk about all of those different styles, but frankly, as gamer geeks, this whole thing got us wondering about something else. If cloaks and capes fell out of style, and coats and jackets were working in military class attire anyway, why the heck do so many superheroes wear capes? When did it start? Now, depending on who you ask, there are a lot of theories about why superheroes wear capes. One of the most prevalent is that it is an imitation of circus performers like strongmen and acrobats whose skin-tight attire also inspired certain superhero costumes. But there is a better answer, and it has to do with Spanish fashion trendsetters, melodrama, and courtly intrigue. See, around about the late 1400s, there was this Spanish playwright and philosopher named Bartolomé de Torres Najaro. And while little is known about his life, he did publish anthologies of his work. And those anthologies included two things. Treatises on the nature of comedy, drama, and art, and, as you might expect, a bunch of plays. Specifically, melodramatic and satirical plays that blurred the line between comedy, drama, fantasy, and reality. And his best plays, like Comodea Teneria, the comedy of the kitchen, was a clever satire of the intrigue and corruption rampant in the palace of the Roman cardinal. Well, lots of playwrights and authors were inspired by his work, and the work of his less famous contemporaries, and they touched off a thing called the Siglo de Oro, that was the golden age of Spanish drama and literature. And that ran from the 16th to the 17th century. And it involved a lot of patriotic and religious themes, a lot of romanticism, and a lot of epics and ballads. And it was very over the top. During this time, there was a particular form of play known as the Comedia de Capa e Espada, the comedies of cloak and sword. Now, that phrase might tickle your brain as being particularly similar to another type of drama, cloak and dagger drama. And the reason for the similarity is because they are the same thing. Cloak and sword gradually became known as cloak and dagger. These plays were about upper-class intrigues mixed with courtly romance. They typically featured complex plots in which political intrigue clashed with romantic ideals and principles of personal honor. 
and they were called cloak and sword dramas because the heroes of the plays were usually cavaliers, soldiers, or upper-class students. And their standard attire, after the courtly fashions of the day, included capes or cloaks and swords or daggers. Now, of course, it's easy to see how this style of drama based on courtly intrigue and complex plots might inspire the espionage and spy thrillers that became associated with the cloak and dagger genre. But what does this have to do with superheroes? Well, it was this sort of drama that inspired the cape-wearing, sword-swinging, pulp-action hero of 18th-century Spanish California known as the Fox. But you probably know him as Zorro. Now, Zorro was invented in 1919 by Johnston McCulley during the early days of pulp adventure fiction, but he was inspired by the cloak-and-sword heroes of the Spanish dramas of old. And more importantly... He was a very early example of a hero who dons a mask and cape to conceal his identity and avenges the common people. And he established many of the themes that would inspire the early creators of superhero comics in the 1930s. Creators like Bob Kane, the inventor of Batman. So maybe we should let Mom off the hook for always mixing up jackets and coats. Because if not for the whole complicated fashion history behind that mix-up, we wouldn't have Batman. And because maybe if we had listened to her, we wouldn't constantly be forgetting our own winter jacket all the time. Thanks for trying, Mom. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>